Cannon Lewis is a USA Today best-selling author with multiple mystery series set in France and a dystopian futurist series set in Ireland. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today on The Joys of Binge Reading, Susan talks about her passion for all things French, her fascination with the idea of a post-apocalyptic world, and the challenges of living with face blindness, a condition which makes it difficult to recognise other people's faces. We've got a special sale price on S.W. Hubbard's latest mystery, Rock Bottom Treasure. It's a twisty read-all-nighter about a washed-up rock journalist who in better days partied with Jimi Hendrix and did yoga with John and Yoko. Links to the special book offer plus Susan's books and website can be found on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com. And don't forget, you can also get exclusive bonus content associated with the show, like hearing Susan's answers on the Getting to Know You Five Quick Fire Questions by becoming a Binge Reading on Patreon supporter. It costs no more than a cup of coffee a month, and you get a lot of exclusive bonus content. Details at patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the joys of binge reading but now here's susan hello there susan and welcome to the show it's great to have you with us thanks hi jenny thank you for having me on the podcast look you're a usa best-selling author with multiple mystery series including contemporary mysteries set in france and a dystopian futurist series set in ireland so tell us what got you started on this big adventure of writing fiction? I think, uh, well, I've always written stories. I think a lot of, a lot of writers, they, they've written stories since they were kids, and, and I'm no exception to that. At this particular time, I had written some stories, the Maggie Newberry Mystery Series, which is probably my most popular series. I'd written the first three books in that, and I wasn't finding a publisher, mostly because I tend to twist the genre. It's not purely cozy. It doesn't, it doesn't adhere strictly to the tropes uh, that are expected in certain cozies. And so as a result, I was having uh, trouble getting them published. And literally this happened about 10 years ago. I had just gotten laid off from a really soul-sucking healthcare corporation where I was living in Atlanta. And my son, who was 13 at the time, said, <laughs> He happened to mention that he had put a book of mine that I had on a floppy disk up on Amazon that he found one day when he was bored. And he said, did you notice that it, it's selling? And I literally looked at him and said, show me what you did. And I'd made about $2,000 off this book in a month. And I made him sit down and show me exactly how he published it. And since I had three other books in the series, I quickly put, put those up. I just have been at it ever since. Now, that's fantastic, without any marketing at all. Yeah, none, none at all. Yeah. So you make this specialty, really, of being a little bit 
cross genre. You you mix up mystery with other elements. So tell us a bit about that, a bit more about that. Well, for example, I've got one series and now many of my series, three of my big series are set in France and they're set in France because I was a military brat, lived in France when I was a kid. So that was a very strongly indelible experience for me. So I keep reverting back to France and French people and the French language. So for me, when I put a setting out for my mysteries, I chose France and I chose my protagonist to be an expatriate, an American, since that's what I know best, living in France in a fish out of water sort of approach, which is always something that attracts me is the idea of being a foreigner in a foreign land and how you deal with certain common everyday situations that are much more interesting when it's not your native culture. So this one series that I did, it's called Stranded in Provence. It crossed the genres because it's a cozy mystery is something that either has your protagonist or your amateur sleuth baking cupcakes and finding out who killed the village librarian. And there's no cussing and there's no sex, which I find extremely unfortunate, but I play by the rules because the readers don't like it. I do not know how some of the bigger authors get away with it, but my readers don't like cussing and they don't like sex. So fine. Um, but anyway, so, but the genre, but it's not, but the genres that I, that I tend toward are not specifically cozy because they're just a little rougher. They're not too, they're not that sweet. And in this particular case, because I tend to read a lot of dystopian and I'm just personally fascinated with the whole post-apocalyptic idea of what would you do if the world ended? Would you be one of the ones that could survive and adapt? And so I basically took the whole fish out of water idea, the feeling of an expatriate coming to France where she doesn't speak the language, she doesn't really know what the, 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 the typical traditions and habits are of the village. And then she's going to do something that she would do in a murder mystery, solve a mystery. And she's going to do it with all those barriers really to jump over. And I feel like all of my books, every one of them, except for the one that happens in Atlanta. And I wrote that purely because I thought maybe it would sell. <laughs> and, and I didn't, I did enjoy writing it, but my preference is always to put an American expat in a foreign country and throw all the things at her that is going to make an interesting read or going to keep readers turning the pages. And I do that and I can trace back that inclination on my part to do that to the two years that I lived in New Zealand. I worked in an ad agency at the time it was called ILOTS Advertising and later it became bought out by uh, Ted Bates. And I was a copywriter there. And the, in those two years, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have email. So I did the whole immersion thing. And even though, yes, we all spoke English, I cannot tell you what a shock to my system it was to be there. It was, everything was different. The clothes were different. Of course, the accent was different. And just the attitude of coming to a small country, which had a very strong feeling about itself, as opposed to America, which is a big country, which is very divided and everybody's got an opinion and it's mostly not the same opinion. It was, it was a shock. And when I left, I 
just continued to write stories about a fish out of water, uh, a, a foreigner who lands in a place and has to make her way. That's what fascinates me. So that's Look, it's interesting because the series of yours that I've particularly enjoyed, I mean, they're all great, but the American in Paris one where you have the central character, Claire, she's a little bit older. She's just turning 60 or nudging 60 and her life implodes at that point. She's suddenly widowed. And then she finds that the man she's married to had hidden secrets that she had no clue about. And she, they're on holiday in Paris when it happens. So, for all of these reasons, she kind of almost gets stuck in Paris because she doesn't feel like she wants to go home and face what he, the mess that he's left behind there. So mm -hmm. she is very much a fish out of water, and not only as an American, but as a single a woman who's suddenly solo after she's been married for years and living in quite a hostile environment because the investigation of a husband's death becomes quite, you know, unsympathetic towards her. So there's a lot of stuff going on there at the beginning. And, and you've turned that into a series. I think it's, you're now on book seven or eight. Eight's coming out soon, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Book eight is coming out soon. Yeah. Yeah. I love, yeah. I, I totally love that series. I love I love writing because when you've got a sleuth or a detective, and unlike a lot of the other uh, detectives that you might see on television or read about, she's got certain barriers that she has to overcome. Like for one thing, physical barriers. I mean, she's just, she can't run as fast from the bad guy. Or if she's flung down in an alley, she is gonna be bruised and aching and, and uh, limping for the next two weeks. And I think that these are all things that first make her more real, but also just show the things that she's got to overcome in order to do the same things that a younger detective might. But you know, the other thing that I love about this is something that is, I think, probably unique to France. And that is that at her age, she's still considered attractive. Yeah. Whether that's a myth or whether that's the real deal, that's the way I write it. In America, uh, in her age at 60, there is no way that she's going to get a second look from anyone, a male. There is no way. But in France, that's still possible. And so that allows me to give another, another tent or shade to her life there, the romantic thing, which is believable, less so in, in, in the U.S., I think. Look, it's interesting that you should say that because the first episode of Joys of Binge Reading that we're going to be publishing in February is, it's actually the first non-fiction book that we've done. It's an Australian radio host, Kate Langbrook, who took her whole family to Italy for 18 months. And one of the interesting things she observes is that women, that the, the attitude to age in Italy is totally different from what it is in Australia. You're considered interesting and valuable and you're not sort of put up cross on a shelf and, oh, you're an old person, just shut up, which is a bit what it's like in New Zealand as well. So right. I maybe it's something about Europe. I mean, would you say that it's factual that women are appreciated at a slightly older age in France, or is that totally your fantasy? Because it sounds like it might be a European thing. I definitely, I would, well, I would prefer to think it's not a fantasy. I would prefer to think that it is actually something. Uh, and I've read a couple of articles about that. There's actually been a couple where French women have said, no, you know, our, our men are just as bad as, you know, Americans or Australians or Kiwi or New Zealand men. 
but the fact but the fact is even when i travel there i i swear i will get a smile or a nod or some kind of reaction that i don't get here in the states yeah uh, and, and and italy for sure yeah now are you um spending a bit of time in france yourself or were you able to do that before the pandemic i'm not quite sure how the pandemic might have affected things but reading the books you get the feeling you do actually spend quite a bit of time there or have in the past anyway. Yeah, I go there. Before the pandemic, I went once a year for a month or more, as much as much time as I could. So I'm going back this year and it'll be the first time in two years. But yeah, so it's, I mean, you know, and my husband asks me all the time, do we really need to go back? Can't you just sort of all those other visits combined with internet research write the books without it. And I do think you could, but I just think it adds it at every single time I go there, I, I see something or I, I realize something that is a little nugget to drop in the books that makes it to me feel more authentic that I wouldn't yes. have had. I just gone on the internet. Now, Claire also has got a condition, which I've never heard of before. Tell us about that, which also makes it extra difficult for her. Right. She's got face blindness, which interestingly, I also have it, which is why I, I don't know why I decided to write about it, but uh, maybe because it is interesting. There is actually Jane Goodall. I was reading a a preface to one of her books and Jane, and this was maybe 15 years ago. And she said in the preface, she said, I'm an introvert. It's really hard for me to meet people, but it's made particularly difficult by the fact that I've got something which is actually a brain defect called prosopagnosia. And when she started to explain how it was that she could see someone's face and then turn away and not recognize them again, I realized this is what I have. And I thought everybody was like that. I thought, I thought every time you would watch a movie and somebody would come on like a man or whatever, like perhaps they were trying to, you know, say he was the the antagonist or whatever, and then he would leave. I was constantly asking my, asking my husband, so have we seen him before? He was going, yeah, he just came there. I said, okay, great, got it. So unless they're wearing a big bow tie or you know some, something outlandish to indicate who they are, it's very difficult for people with face blindness. And there's varying degrees. Some people don't recognize their own faces in the mirror. Some people, you know, it's just, it's a brain defect. The, the ability to remember or to under to recognize a face, they say, is absolutely one of our most basic skills or habits, and we're born with it. Mine was genetic. Most people who have it, it's been a, a hit on the head or something traumatic physically happens to sort of damage that part of the brain. But I did think it was good giving this disability to a, a detective because first I wanted to see if it could be done, if you could actually do this job while not being able to remember faces. And I thought it just gave a little bit of extra interest to her to have her struggle with that. Absolutely. Look, I'd never heard of that before. So yours must be fairly mild or or you would have perhaps realized earlier. Would that be right? No, I I mean, mine's pretty bad. It is, uh, I remember going on dates. I would meet someone like we'd meet at a bar and maybe we'd exchange phone numbers and so forth. And then the next day he would come to the door and I would open the door and I'd go, huh, I have never seen this person before, ever, (laughs) ever. And but I mean, usually if he was a good looking in the bar, you know, he was still good looking. So, I mean, I, you know, I can certainly I could tell 
if someone was, you know, to my taste or not, but no, absolutely. And I, I can be with friends for weeks and weeks before I'm able to recognize them in a crowd or someplace else. I just, and people, blonde haired women, especially, it's just impossible. I just, they all look alike to me and I can't, I can't differentiate one from another, which is one of the reasons like when in high school, all my friends were the ones with terrible acne or big, huge noses. (laughs) These were things that set them apart and instantly, you know, told me, oh, that's Elizabeth with the big nose. But attractive people, no way. I would never in a million years be able to recognize them a second time. But even had trouble recognizing my son and my husband. So Yeah, that's 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 remarkable, Susan. It really is. And, and <laughs> no wonder the Claire, the American in Paris, it does have such a ring of truth about it. So we can fully understand why. So the book that's coming out in February is called Toujours Dead. And you had one last year as well. Murder Flambe, that was book seven. So book eight is coming out in that series. Now you've got Stranded in Provence, which is the one you mentioned about the post-apocalyptic series that's combined with cozy mysteries. It's very much something that's been made possible because of indie publishing, isn't it? Because trad publishers don't really like authors that cross genres too much because they don't know quite where to put them in the bookshops, do they? Exactly. Exactly. It, oh, what was it? I mean, you see all these really funny cartoons about, you know, someone saying, introducing the editor that turned down the Harry Potter series. Yes. Yeah. You know, because people don't recognize, I mean, editors or people, not necessarily editors, but producers, most likely producers or showrunners or publishers don't recognize often something amazing unless it is very much like the last thing that was amazing. It's hard to have something unique or different break out because these people really do need uh, a forerunner so that they know how successful it can be. But I mean, writers, that's another reason why, obviously I, traditional publishers is also not a good place to make money or to make a living. Uh, where indie publishing, uh, you absolutely can make a good living, but, to it's giving up the control of being able to write what you want. If I were to go with a publisher, aside from giving up the money, I would have to pay attention to what they wanted me to write as opposed to what I want to write and what I'm driven to write. And I really do think that if you write the thing you love, that comes through. And I don't think you, and you can be told what to write. I mean, I, again, I had a career as an advertising copywriter I was told what to write my whole career so it can be done. But I really do think that the, the passion and the thing that makes it special, that, that comes from the, the author, deep inside the author or wherever, not from you know, a, a promotion or a promoter or a, a publicity person saying, you know, it would be great if you could have a protagonist with you know, round glasses and a wand and, you know, so... Yeah, that's right. Do you think also that maybe this time when the world's in such disruption that books that are a little bit outside the square also have a better chance of 
attracting readers. I mean, Claire in, in American and Paris, she's having to rebuild her life from ground level later in life. And uh, quite a few people are probably faced with that kind of situation in the world we're now living in. Have you had that kind of feedback from readers in the last couple of years? Not specifically for that, although uh, now that you mentioned it, I think that is absolutely um, something that is happening. I've had a lot of people say, you know, they were going through health issues or whatever, and the books, especially the Irish End Games, were were something that they could go from book to book to book to book, and it just took them to a different world. But I, I, I thought, and I worried, or mostly my husband worried, that during the pandemic, people would see anything like that moving to a different country and trying to start over as being too close to reality and it would be uncomfortable for them, but it's been the exact opposite. It, if anything, people are more interested in redoing their lives, whether it's a pandemic that forces it or, or whatever in their life. We're taking a short break. Susan, Ken and Lewis will be back with us shortly. If you love historical mystery series, take a look at Jenny Wheeler's Of Gold and Blood series. Yes, that's me. I write historical fiction as well as do these podcasts. It's set in colourful California of the 1860s and 70s. Dangerous Desires is book 10 in the Of Gold and Blood mystery series. It's in digital bookstores on March 15, and it's available on pre-order at a special launch price of $1.99 now. And here we are, back with Susan, Ken and Lewis. Now, Irish End Games you've mentioned, that is the one where an American family gets stuck in Ireland after a dystopian event. They, and that one has had a great reception. I was curious as to whether you had a personal relationship with Ireland. Why did you choose Ireland as the setting for that series instead of some other country, like New Zealand, for example. I know, and actually, and I do want to do, I want to set something in New Zealand, but I chose Ireland for two reasons. I mean, you, you're, you, you will laugh when you hear this, and let me just explain why. When I left New Zealand, I met my best friend, who I kept saying, oh, you've got to come visit me down here, you'll love it, it's great, it's wonderful. My best friend said, I was, I was looking for a job in an ad agency in London at the time, instead of coming right back to the US, and she said, no, that's so much further away than New Zealand, you need to be closer. And I said, you have no idea where New Zealand is, do you? And now, after the Lord of the Rings, everybody <laughs> knows where New Zealand is. But at the time, it was still, in fact, even now, I, most of my friends, no one's ever visited there. They know about it. They know it's amazing. They have not gone. The thing about Ireland, well, first of all, Kiernan is my last name. And so my family's Irish, Irish-American. My father was first generation. But the thing about Ireland is that it is a make-believe country, even though it's a real country. It has so much brigadoon to it. It's got so much magic and leprechauns and mysticism to it that even if you've never been there, it, it, everybody has got a strong sense of what it is. Mm -hmm. It's green. They all talk really interesting. It's kind of romanticized. It's a romanticized island. I mean, I used to write this all the time and people would say, well, but the real Ireland, I said, you know what? I know real Ireland is great, but that's not what people want to hear about. And that's not what, that's not where they want the story set. They don't want it set 
in a country that's got all of these computer, you know, hot shots and all of these uh, startup companies, they don't want that. They want a beautiful green island with lots of horses and they want a sort of mysticism that they can't find any place else in the world. Yeah. And that's why I chose it. I yeah. chose it because when I could drop the bomb on Ireland in this fantasized world of mine, they did not have to take too big a step backward to get where I needed them to get, which was cars are gone. So now we're back to horses. Well, Ireland is full of horses. Everybody rides there. So that wasn't too big a, a jump. And the technology is gone. So, well, these people are living out in these villages. And honestly, most of them didn't have uh, computers anyway. So that wasn't a very big jump. So it was an easier, I mean, I could have done the same thing in France uh, or Germany or Italy, any place in Europe, probably Portugal for sure. But, but Ireland, like I say, it's got, maybe because the Irish-American thing, there are so many famous Irish-Americans Irish that I felt like I had a built-in audience. Yes, here. and that has been an extremely popular series, hasn't it? It has, yeah, it mm. has. I loved, I loved writing it, and I'm glad people were able to uh, connect with it like that. So how do you set about planning a series? Well, let's see, how do I do that? The, for example, with the Stranded in Paris thing, the, uh, I've got three French, French series. Each one of them, the protagonist is a different age. So, for example, the Stranded in, in, in Provence, I had just finished Irish Endgames. I'd written the last book, and I was really sad that that was over because I love you know, dystopian fiction. So I decided I'm going to, in that case, I sat down and decided, keep her in France because that's what you want. Make her a millennial so you can make her very snarky and funny and witty and and then add the bomb going off so that, you know, the EMT or whatever explodes over the, the Mediterranean so that all the lights go out, which forces her to to solve the crimes in the Agatha Christie mode as opposed to computers and DNA and forensic analysis and all that advanced technology, which makes it so easy. I had this, this great memory of my mother sitting there watching Criminal Minds. And she said, you know, this one actress, all she's done is sit at her computer through the whole show. And I thought, how boring is that? You know, yeah. she's not knocking on doors. She's not, you know, getting accosted in alleyways. She's sitting at her computer and she is solving the crime. But how dull that is. And yeah. so, yeah, so this, this taking the technology out enabled me to go back in time and, you know, to that golden age of detectiveship. So sure. that was kind of, that was kind of deliberate in that way to do those, to those things. The others, Maggie and also in America and Paris were just my desire to be in France and to live an idealized life there. And this helped me do it. And you have to give her something to do. So I made her a detective and honestly, Mysteries sell better than uh, a lot of other uh, genres, so I chose mysteries. Romance, of course, sells the best, and you always want to throw romance in. I mean, I think any, every book is made better if there is a romantic element to it. But but I but I stick I, I stick with the thriller or the mystery um, genre is the one I'm most comfortable with. And when you start, do you have an idea? Say what you're going to be putting into the first three or five books or do you start and, and more or less no, rely on your inspiration to keep yourself going? 
Yeah, I don't. The first three or four, I'm just winging it all the way. And I'm just, you know, getting momentum and going and wow, what if this happens? And Oh, you know what? I'll take her here. And then about <laughs> about the fourth or the fifth book is when I realized, OK, now you need to have some idea of where this is all going. Um, I don't know if you ever saw the show Lost. The television. I didn't actually, but I know I've heard of it. Yeah, I've heard it. Right. It, it, I forget. I think it went on for like five um five seasons and it was fascinating and it was everyone was analyzing how they were doing it and why they were doing it until it became very clear that the writers really had no idea what they were doing so it was much more interesting thinking that there was an end game that we all were headed toward as opposed to they were just pulling it out of their hat every week and there was no rhyme or reason to it so I, the first three books I let myself just kind of see where I'm going and then after that I start looking ahead and I start uh, plotting some things and when I talk about season or series arc because obviously what happens in each book is just whatever the mystery is somebody dies a bunch of clues some suspects find out who did it and that starts and ends within one book but when I've got a series like this, uh, for example, if you know anything about Claire and her, and her situation, she's got this malevolent father off in Dubai who is trying to complicate her lives, her life. And that has to be something that's done over several books so that it's building, getting bigger and bigger and actually worse and worse until something happens that nobody would have ever um, imagined. And I just have to get to the point where once I imagine it, I'll write it. Yeah, yeah. She's. I know that he's getting involved in her daughter's life now too, isn't he? Right. Um, yes. Throwing his weight around. So yes, that's definitely it. And and her relationship with the detective who started out being very hostile to her because she was an American. That's been a wonderful slow burn evolution as well. So you've got those threads that keep keep chain that keep evolving and developing as you go along, don't you? And it's actually, I was going to say in many ways, some of the harder ones is the Maggie Newberry mystery. I'm book 20 is coming out in a couple of weeks and that's 20 books. And when I started this, the first book, she met the Frenchman that she would end up marrying. And in book 20, she is struggling with um, empty nest syndrome. So all of the kids, she's had kids, they're all gone. So she's actually grown book by book and she's aged. She started at 25 and now she's like, I think she's 48 or something like that. But, and I'm not saying that it's tricky because I really felt like in order to tell her story, living in the village, I had to have her evolve and age. And I know a lot of people, they can write their series where their detective never ages. But especially if the detective has kids, you can't keep them at seven years old forever. I mean, you just can't. No. Uh, so maybe that was my mistake. I should never have given her children. But anyway, that so that's that's kind of a, a an, an interesting thing for me because I know that I have to constantly complicate her life, her her life living in France with a Frenchman. And again, I come back to the fact that when I was in New Zealand. I was with someone who was not an American. And even though he spoke the King's, Queen's English, I cannot tell you how many times we misunderstood each other. And so putting her with a Frenchman, they literally don't speak each other's language. I mean, they do by now, but they didn't at first, was just delicious. All the different misunderstandings and confusions and conflict, which of course is the gas that makes every 
book and story go forward is just conflict everywhere. Look, I would love to keep talking to you all day, but we are starting to run out of time. So turning to Susan as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, and we like to make some recommendations of what you're reading and what you'd recommend for listeners. You mentioned that you like to read dystopian fiction. What would you recommend just on your own bedside table at the moment that you're reading? I There is there is one book that I would recommend. I mean, I'm going to recommend a couple, but one of them is by uh, an author named Peter Heller, and it's called The Dog Stars. And it is, it's dystopian. It, it's beautifully written and it's written by a guy who actually is the the main writer for I think it's for hunting and and tracking so he writes about sports so the fact that he's written a dystopian book where obviously there's no more electricity and and all that he's out in the woods living it's it's a beautiful book and it's also a hair-raising book which is is great fun I would suggest The Dog Stars by Peter Heller and yep. also uh, a book called A Boy and His Dog at the End of the World. And I don't know if you've heard of that before. It's by an author named Charlie Fletcher. And honestly, I, I just have to say, because I have recommended this to so many people, and I do it on my Facebook page and on Instagram, and all my readers will jump back and say, I'm not going to read it if the dog dies, so you just have to promise me the dog doesn't die. So if, if you're interested, it's a great book, and no, the dog doesn't die. And is that another dystopian? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's great. That's wonderful. Tell me, just I'm interested, when you started out with writing, with your career as a writer of fiction, did you have any particular um, sort of vision or image of how you wanted, a goal you wanted to achieve? And where are you up to with that now? Have you far exceeded your ambitions or have you still got places you want to go? It's interesting that you would say that because I would have assumed all my life uh, when I was working in ad agencies that what I'd really want to do would be make a decent living writing fiction. And I'm doing that. And now that I'm doing it, I realize um, that I want... I want my fiction to be turned into a televised series. I would like a broader audience. So I, the way I write is uh, I like to write for television and script. And I'm very, uh, very happy with writing for script. And I would like to do more of that. So I've got one of my series, which we didn't talk about today, which has been optioned. So we'll see if it turns into anything. It's the Mia Kasmarov series. And the executive producer also said that I would be welcome to write an episode if I was interested, and I would love that. So that's the one that's set in a private investigation agency where they take lost causes and cold cases, set in Atlanta. How far along is that one with getting to the screen? It, it, it's in the process of being pitched, basically, to Netflix and various other places. Uh Yeah. yeah, it's still with the uh, it's still with the producer. Look, looking back down the tunnel of time, if there's one thing in your writing career that you'd change, that if you could, what would it be? Honestly, I loved my my experience working in ad agencies, but I, what I would have changed is that I would have gone to LA when I was younger, and I would have tried to write for television. Uh, uh-huh. I would try to break, at least try to break in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I don't, I think that's what I would have at least given it a shot. Sure. Have you done any actual script writing 
you know, tuition or have you tried your hand at it yourself? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know I've got several scripts and I mean, and through the years I've done projects. I wrote a couple of musicals years ago. I worked, did radio program stories like just radio plays in Atlanta and yes, I've got a stack of plays. So it was just my, I, in many ways, my first love is either screenwriting or actually playwriting. But both of those are just, you can't make any money. I'm not, I'm going to say you can't make any money. I suppose someone can make some money. But at this point, I'm still interested in making a living. And although I would dearly love to see a production of mine on stage, it's just not in the cards. I can't stop writing books long enough to do something like that. And in the world that we're moving into, I mean, theatre, sadly, has, is becoming more and more of a, a marginalised thing, probably, I do have to say, because the, right. the digital world is just taking over so much. You're right. Mm. I mean, I love live performance, just love it. But you're right. Look, what's next for Susan as the fictional author, looking over the next 12 months? What are you going to be busy with? Well, I've got I've got two more Maggie books and two more Claire books, and then I've allowed myself enough time to do another project, whatever that whatever that is. Either I I'm just going to be wide open to something, whether it's a short story or whether I start a new series. I always love starting a brand new series. It's so much fun to meet the people and see where I'm going to be. So I just want to give myself that time. So in six weeks, it takes me six weeks to write a book. The rest of the time is given to editors and proofers and all like that. But my work is pretty much done in six weeks. So if I take six weeks and set it aside and say, this is what I'm going to do, whatever I want, just see where I am at that time of the year and what hits me. That's fabulous. Now, being an indie author, I'm sure you are close to your audience, but how do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? Oh, I loved loved, uh, hearing from my readers. I've got Facebook groups for each of the book series. So probably if they just go to the search function on Facebook and type in, well, certainly you can type in my name because I'm I'm there as an author as well. But each of the series, Irish Endgames, the Maggie Newberry Mysteries, the uh, An American in Paris Mysteries, even Stranded in Provence, and I think Mia Kasmeroff Mysteries, they're all there. They all have private groups. I also have a website and just there's several different places to contact me through the website or you can direct message me through, through Facebook or Instagram. Fantastic. Now, we'll put all of those links into the show notes for this episode as well so that they'll be there forevermore. Look, fantastic talking to you today, Susan. It really is. I am quite bowled over by the amount that you get done and the success that you've had with it. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you so much for letting me speak on your podcast, Jenny. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Susan. Bye now. Next week on The Joys of Binge Reading, we have international best-selling novelist Christian White, a Melbourne screenwriter, producer and novelist whose latest psychological thriller, Wild Place, sets up the age-old question, why do good people do bad things? That's it for today. Join us again next week. Don't forget to subscribe to Binge Reading on Patreon for exclusive bonus content and happy reading.